This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, Shakespeare gives us one more fairy tale. It's time for Cymbeline. We do not meet a man but frowns. Our bloods no more obey the heavens than our courtiers still seem as does the king. With five times so much conversation, I should get ground of your fair mistress. Make her go back even to the yielding. I hate you, which I had rather you felt than make my boast. Posthumous, you ne'er killed Imogen till now. All right, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Your timer is set for one minute. All is rotten in the state of England. Cymbeline, a king with two lost sons, is enraged to learn that his daughter Imogen has married posthumous Leonatus, the king's ward. The king wants Imogen to marry Clotin, the son of the queen, his second wife. Banished to Italy, posthumous meets Yakimo, who bets him that he can seduce Imogen. Yakimo arrives, makes the attempt, and fails, but he hides himself in a chest that's brought into Imogen's bedroom and steals a bracelet posthumous gave her, which he uses to fool posthumous into thinking Imogen was unfaithful. Posthumous is enraged and orders his servant Bassano to kill Imogen, but Bassano can't do it, and Imogen, disguising herself as a boy, flees to the Welsh coast. She meets two men who become her friends when Clotin follows Imogen with the intent of kidnapping her. The two men behead him. Because Clotin was wearing posthumous clothes, don't ask why, Imogen thinks he's dead. Still dressed as a boy, she ends up in the servants of the Romans, who are at war with England. Everyone fights, England wins, Yakimo confesses, the lovers are reunited, and the two men who Imogen met turn out to be Cymbeline's lost sons. Oh, and the queen is evil, but don't worry about it, because she dies before the end of the play. Mixing history, comedy, and tragedy, Cymbeline is a grab bag, the equivalent of a Shakespearean mixtape. All of Shakespeare's greatest hits are here. The lovers who can't be together, the children abandoned as babies who return years later, the girl who dresses as a boy, the mysterious drug that imitates death, jealous men, faithful women, Roman soldiers, ghosts, gods, war, random singing, grotesque violence, deathbed confessions. There is no way around it. Cymbeline is Shakespeare's craziest play, a wild theatrical experiment that mashes up so many different genres, plots, and styles that it's astonishing the thing makes any sense at all. And yet, it does. There's a surprisingly energetic heroine, some wicked villains, and a plot that, while silly, nonetheless provides a great deal of dramatic thrills. Plenty of critics have dismissed Cymbeline precisely because it has nothing new to say. Harley Granville Barker said it demonstrated Shakespeare had wearied as an artist, while Harold Bloom called it a self-parody. George Bernard Shaw hated the play so much he rewrote the ending. More on this later. I accept all these criticisms, and yet I can't bring myself to share them. Like any album of greatest hits, there isn't an ounce of originality in Cymbeline, but that doesn't make it any less fun. Like Othello, the play opens in the aftermath of a marriage. Shakespeare's focus is not on how the lovers get together, but rather on what happens next. Cymbeline and Othello before it both begin where most plays end. But the similarities don't end there. Before long, Posthumus meets up with Yakimo, who, like Iago, attempts to stoke Posthumus's jealousy by claiming that Imogen would never be faithful. But whereas Iago does it to destroy Othello, Yakimo does it solely for his own amusement. What lady would you choose to assail? Yours. Whom in constancy you think stands so safe? 
I will lay you ten thousand ducats to your ring that commend me to the court where your lady is, with no more advantage than the opportunity of a second conference, and I will bring from thence that honour of hers which you imagine so reserved. I will wage against your gold, gold to it. My ring I hold dear as my finger, tis part of it. You are a friend, and therein the wiser. If you buy ladies' flesh at a million a dram, you cannot preserve it from tainting. But I see you have some religion in you that you fear. This is but a custom in your tongue. You bear a graver purpose, I hope. I am the master of my speeches and would undergo what's spoken, I swear. The villains of Cymbeline are an intriguing bunch and worth a closer examination. Yakimo is the most interesting of the group. Iago has a personal vendetta, but Yakimo is a mercenary with time on his hands. In a way, this makes him worse. He attempts to destroy Posthumus and Imogen just to see if he can. Having stoked Posthumus's jealousy, he tries to do the same with Imogen when he tells her that Posthumus has been spending his time away from her in revelry. When he was here, he did incline to sadness and oft times, not knowing why. I never saw him sad. There is a Frenchman, his companion, one an eminent monsieur that, it seems, much loves a gallian girl at home. He furnishes the thick sighs from him, whilst the jolly Briton, your lord I mean, laughs from free lungs, cries, oh, can my sides hold to think that man who knows by history, report, or his own proof what woman is, Yea, what she cannot choose but must be, wills free hours languish for assured bondage. Will my lord say so? Ay, madam, with his eyes in flood with laughter. It is a recreation to be by and hear him mock the Frenchman. Yakimo then makes his fatal mistake. Having enraged her against Posthumus, he attempts to seduce her for himself. Had I this cheek to bathe my lips upon, this hand whose touch whose every touch would force the feeler's soul to the oath of loyalty. This object, which takes prisoner the wild motion of mine eye, fixing it only here, should I, damned then, slaver with lips as common as the stairs that mount the capital, join gripes with hands made hard with hourly falsehood, falsehood as with labour, then by peeping in an eye, base and illustrious as the smoky light that's fed with stinking tallow, it were fit that all the plagues of hell should at one time encounter such revolt. My lord, I fear, has forgot Britain. And himself. Not I inclined to this intelligence pronounced the beggar of his change, but it is your graces that from my mutest conscience to my tongue charms this report out. Let me hear no more. In Imogen, Yakimo has met his match. It would be easy to portray him as a creep from the start, but this would take away from the delight of this scene. Yakimo is a Casanova, and a successful one at that. It's likely that the technique he employs in this scene is one which he has used to great effect in the past. The scene only has tension if Yakimo comes across as entirely sincere. If we see that Imogen believes his tale of Posthumus's debauchery, then we will start to wonder if maybe Yakimo might fool her into falling out of love. In the opening scene, Imogen has earned our sympathies because she's being separated from her lover. Now we're wondering if these sympathies are undeserved. It's a scene with great reversals in which Imogen proves her loyalty and Yakimo, having failed, must think fast on his feet, something he does with impressive skill. 
First, he tells Imogen that his seduction attempt was just a test. And second, he asks her to keep a treasure chest in her bedchamber on his behalf, already privately planning to hide inside. For Yakimo, the stakes have been raised. He is the Casanova who has been snubbed. And now, he wants revenge. Yakimo, of course, isn't the only one trying to win Imogen's heart. Rotten Clotten, the queen's son, is scheming to win his stepsister's hand in marriage. If there's something unique about Cymbeline, it has to be this dullard of a prince, mostly because while Shakespeare has had plenty of clowns in his cast of characters, he rarely makes one the villain. In this respect, Clotten has more in common with Master Ford and the Merry Wives of Windsor, for both men are fools who are driven by jealousy. Clotten wants what Posthumus already has and is determined to have Imogen all to himself. We are treated then to a scene that mirrors the one between Imogen and Yakimo. Clotten attempts to seduce her, but he is no Casanova. I care not for you. And I am so near the lack of charity to accuse myself. I hate you, which I had rather you felt than make my boast. You sin against obedience, which you owe your father. For the contract you pretend with that base wretch, one bred of arms and fostered with cold dishes, with scraps of the court, it is no contract, none. And though it be allowed in meaner parties, yet who than he more mean, to knit their souls, on whom there is no more dependency but brats and beggary, in self-figured not, yet you are curbed from that enlargement by the consequence of the crown, and must not foil the precious note of it with a base slave, a hilding for a livery, a squire's cloth, a pantler, not so eminent. Profane fellow, wert thou the son of Jupiter, and no more but what thou art besides, thou wert too base to be his groom. Thou wert dignified enough, even to the point of envy, if t'were made comparative for your virtues to be styled the underhangman of his kingdom, and hated for being preferred so well. Well, the South Fog rot him! He never can meet more mischance than come to be but named of thee. His meanest garment that ever hath but clipped his body is dearer in my respect than all the hairs above thee were they all made such men. Shakespeare's pantheon of characters is so replete with competent villains that it's always refreshing to find one who's lacking in skill. Had Clotten been the play's only villain, this incompetence would rob the play of its tension. But Clotten isn't working alone. He's partners with his villainous mother, and she's the one we have every right to fear. She's the one who brings real tension to the proceedings, because she's the one who plots and plans and schemes. Wisely, Shakespeare keeps the Queen's true motives a secret, at least for a while, although the Queen does have an opening line that is amusing when you read it, knowing how wicked she actually is. No, be assured, you shall not find me, daughter, after the slander of most stepmothers, evil-eyed unto you. You're my prisoner, but your jailer shall deliver you the keys that lock up your restraint. For you, Posthumus, so soon as I can win the offended king, I will be known your advocate. Marry yet, the fire of rage is in him, and to a good you leaned unto his sentence with what patience your wisdom may inform you. Between the Queen, Clotten, and Yakimo, we already have more than enough villains to keep us busy, but Shakespeare throws in the angry Romans too, which elevates the crisis in the kingdom beyond the love lives of its royal family. 
Complex as Cymbeline is, one can't ever fault it for having a lack of ambition. In every scene, Shakespeare keeps raising the dramatic stakes so that a play that starts off stealing from Othello soon steals from the histories too. By the fifth act, the fate of England itself hangs in the balance. Plot, said George Bernard Shaw, has always been the curse of serious drama. It is so out of place that Shakespeare never could invent one. It is true that Cymbeline suffers from a lot of plot, which often takes center stage over the characters. Consider the lengthy second scene of Act 4. Imogen has met Belarius and Guiderius, who thinks she's a boy named Fidel. Ill from her journey, she takes a drug that Bassano gave her. Now, this drug was given by the queen and has the power of making her seem as if she's dead. While Imogen passes out in a cave, Clotin arrives in Posthumus's clothing, another plot point that isn't worth getting into. He fights with Belarius and Guiderius, loses his head. Belarius and Guiderius find Imogen in the cave, think she's dead, and leave to prepare a double burial. Imogen wakes, sees the body, recognizes the clothes, and thinks Posthumus is dead. As she's mourning him, Lucius, the Roman captain, enters and, assuming Imogen is a boy, mourning his dead master, he hires her as a page boy and brings her with him. Now, not only is all this incredibly complicated, it all happens in a single scene. Now, I don't know what the record is for the number of plot points to occur in a single scene in Shakespeare, but this one has to be in the running. The extravagant plot is so wildly complicated that I have to disagree with Shaw. Shakespeare did invent one here, and it's as intricate as anything in the comedy of errors. The scene I've just mentioned in Act 4 accomplishes a lot of narrative tasks in a relatively short amount of time. It dispatches one of the villains, puts Imogen on the Roman battlefield where she will be captured and eventually recognized by the king. Having had Imogen escape to Milford Haven, Shakespeare now had to get her back to Posthumus, and this was how he chose to do it. Admittedly, he chose the longest and most difficult road possible. So you can argue with the method, but you can't really argue with the results. The scene also affords us with one of Shakespeare's best songs. A lot of his plays feature songs, but Fear No More, sung by Belarius and Guiderius over the body of Fidel, is a haunting lament. Or perhaps I just think this because I can never hear the lyrics without thinking of the version written by the glorious composer-lyricist Stephen Sondheim for the 1974 musical The Frogs. Now, in The Frogs, Dionysus, the Greek god, has to go to the underworld for reasons I won't get into, where Shaw and Shakespeare end up getting pitted against each other to see who is the greatest poet. This battle is a bit of a literary joke because Shaw often went to war with Shakespeare in the many essays and plays that he wrote. Shaw had mixed feelings about Cymbeline, so much so that in 1937 he wrote Cymbeline Refinished, a new fifth act to replace the one that, in Shaw's words, goes to pieces. Later, he added that he wanted to rewrite the act as Shakespeare might have written it, quote, had he been post-Ibsen and post-Shaw instead of post-Marlowe. In other words, Shaw wanted a more modern take. Consequently, he rewrote Shakespeare, and in doing so, he did what theater companies have always done. The only difference is he actually admitted it. It's hard not to sympathize with Shaw's motives. Shaw didn't care for the sudden arrival of Jupiter in the fifth act, or the dashing heroics of Posthumus and Imogen's brothers during the war with Rome. 
I'm less annoyed by these things since they are part of the fairy tale aspect of Cymbeline, which was never meant, I think, to be taken all that seriously. The play is a fantasy and caps the trilogy of fairy tale plays that already consists of Pericles and the Winter's Tale. All of these plays invoke elements of Greek and Roman myth, so I'm not as offended as Shaw was by the arrival of the gods or the near supernatural heroism of the soldiers in beating back Rome. Say what you will about it, but at least it's true to form. However, I'm right with Shaw when he complains about the way Imogen is treated. As I've said, Cymbeline is a hodgepodge of Shakespeare's favorite tropes, so we probably couldn't avoid an ending which tries to undercut its heroine. We see this most notably in Measure for Measure, but it shows up elsewhere from The Taming of the Shrew right down to The Winter's Tale. In all these cases, the men are not made to pay for their bad behavior and in fact are often rewarded for it. Posthumus, convinced of Imogen's infidelity, orders Pisano to kill her. In Shakespeare, this is never remarked upon. Reunited with Posthumus, the pair have a lovely reunion. Why did you throw your wedded lady from you? Think that you are upon a rock, and now throw me again. <laughs> Hang there like fruit, my soul, till the tree die. As we saw elsewhere, Shakespeare constantly had the problem of wanting to give a happy ending to couples who didn't exactly deserve it. Posthumus was sympathetic until he decided that death is the only answer for adultery. After that, he becomes a lesser mortal. As for Imogen, she remains a superior character, driven to dire straits by the fact that she is the play's MacGuffin, the thing that everyone fights over and which drives the plot. Is it any wonder she disguises herself and escapes? As Fidel, she does not get to secretly spy on her lover, as Rosalind did when she dressed up in As You Like It. Instead, Imogen gets a little peace from all the men of the play who are constantly fighting for her attention. In rewriting the ending for Cymbeline, Shaw actually allows Imogen her due. She chastises Posthumus for making the wager with Yakimo, and then attacks him for responding in a way that Othello himself might have approved. Well... <laughs> My dearest, what could I think? This fellow did describe a mole upon your breast. And thereupon you bade your servant kill me. It seemed natural. <laughs> Strike me again, but do not say such things! And if you do, by Jupiter's lightning bolt, I'll kill you where you fit your sons-in-law. Peace, boy, we're in the presence of the king! Cadwall! Cadwall, you and Polydor, my newfound brothers, are my truest friends. Would either of you or I... Ten times faithless have sent a slave to kill me. All the world should die first. Whilst we live, Fidele, none shall harm you. Later, Cymbeline orders Imogen to change her clothes and obey her husband. Shaw's response for her may not be Shakespeare's, but it's infinitely more satisfying. Now, I don't actually have a recording of this ending, so you'll have to indulge me while I wet my acting chops. Cymbeline says, Go change your dress for one becoming to your sex and rank. Have you no shame? Imogen. None. Cymbeline, how? None? Imogen, all is lost. Shame, husband, happiness, and faith in man. He is not even sorry. But later, Imogen has to accept her fate. I will not laugh. I must go home and make the best of it, as other women must. And so Imogen and Posthumus go off into the sunset, but Imogen isn't exactly thrilled about it, which is probably as honest an ending as we're ever going to get. I can't really blame anyone who substitutes Shaw's fifth act for Shakespeare's, and given how unpopular the play is among the public, I sometimes wonder if anyone would really notice if we just changed things and never mentioned it. 
Now, I can't really advocate such things. All I can say is that if you are going to replace Shakespeare with Shaw, advertise it on your posters so that the audience knows what to expect. Producers of Cymbeline, just like those of The Taming of the Shrew, The Winter's Tale, and especially Measure for Measure, have to grapple with the implications of Shakespeare's ending for a modern world. But the endings aside, the thing producers should also remember about Cymbeline is that it's a Shakespearean extravaganza, and it isn't meant to be anything other than a lot of theatrical fun. There's no great insights into the human soul, just a lot of decent writing, and a plot as complicated as anything in a British farce. You could do worse than spend an evening at the theatre with Cymbeline, depending on what production you get. If the cast is having fun, you might as well sit back and enjoy the ride. The play was written in earnest. Shakespeare wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel, but he was clearly having a good time writing the thing, so we might as well enjoy watching it, too. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. The BBC can be relied on for the fateful version of Cymbeline, and as always, I'm going to recommend their production for those wanting a traditional, if stodgy, take on the play. It's notable for featuring a young Helen Mirren as Imogen, but it's also missing some key moments, such as the military conquests and the moment when Posthumus spares Yakimo's life. Now, this has the result of making Yakimo's turn at the play's end feel sudden and artificial. However, if you really want to spend a bizarre night at the movies, you'll want to watch Michael Almoreda's 2014 film, which takes the script of Cymbeline and sets it in the middle of a street war between bikers, bad cops, and drug lords. How bravely thou becomes thy bed, and whiter than the sheets that I might touch, but kiss. One kiss. Almereda is the one behind the modern-day Hamlet, which starred Ethan Hawke, but modernizing Hamlet at least sort of makes sense. But if awards are given for the craziest Shakespearean adaptations, then this one has to take first prize, if only because Almereda A. took an obscure play, and B. reset it in a world that is completely unlike the one in which it was originally set. In Hamlet, Denmark became the Denmark Corporation, and Hamlet the son of a CEO. The parallel makes sense, and so the adaptation more or less falls into place. But here, Cymbeline is the leader of a biker gang, and the war with Rome is a war with cops. It's the equivalent of taking Hamlet and setting it in a kindergarten. Almereda took two completely different worlds and stuck them together. The result is something darker and grittier than anything Shakespeare imagined. The adaptation doesn't exactly work, though the cast tries their best. Ethan Hawke is Yakimo, Alton Yelchin shows up as Clotin, Ed Harris is Cymbeline himself, and they all try their best with what they're given. Cymbeline has always been more plot than character, and this movie does stick to the plot, but it does little to illuminate the people themselves. Even so, I do remain at least a little appreciative of this film, for while it isn't very good, I have to give it credit for being as wildly extravagant as the play itself. Shakespeare was mashing up a lot of genres, so I suppose I can't blame Almereda for trying to do the same thing. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for this episode of Shakespeare Unbarred. 
If you want to listen to more episodes or find out more about me and what I do with my time, I invite you to visit www.joelfishbane.net, where you'll find every episode of Shakespeare Unbarred available for download. Although I, it's much better for me if you listen to this in iTunes or your favorite podcast feed. While you're at my website, why not check out my book, The Thunder of Giants? It's available from St. Martin's Press and is about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. Thanks so much for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. 35 plays down, three to go. Will Shakespeare as a play, let's go and cough through it.